HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Food sovereignty really is, um, especially with indigenous communities, tied to food security because they need to have access to the foods, they need to be able to produce them, they need to be able to mandate their own rules around them. A recent Supreme Court ruling determined that large parts of eastern Oklahoma are a Native American reservation. This has been hailed as a victory for indigenous people's sovereignty, but the full impact of the decision remains uncertain. The ruling directly affects criminal jurisdiction for Native Americans, but whether taxes, zoning, and other forms of government oversight will be implicated is yet to be seen. Oil and gas companies are one of many interested parties waiting for an outcome as Oklahoma is the fourth largest oil-producing state in the U.S., But a critical part of Oklahoma's economy also depends on agriculture, raising questions about how food will factor into the aftermath of this decision. This week, we share stories about indigenous foods and food sovereignty here in the U.S. and across the globe. We'll explore the richness of indigenous ingredients, the power of smallholder farms, and the importance of representation. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. For our first story, we join Tosh Kimmel in conversation with Muckleshoot and Cherokee tribe members Valerie Segrist and Clint Carroll on the importance of native food sovereignty. Settler colonialism has worked hard to strip Native peoples of every facet of their autonomy. Their land, language, religions, traditional knowledge, and even the right to harvest the foods they've relied on for millennia. As an essential aspect of our physical and mental well-being, it's easy to take for granted our freedom in choosing what foods we eat. However, for many Native populations, specifically those with little to no access to their traditional diets, The fight for food sovereignty is an important aspect in pushing back against colonization's lasting effects. Food sovereignty is is a a small slice of a a larger pie that uh, I think many indigenous peoples are um, embarking upon to reclaim these um, land-based practices. Really, it's about being able to provide for your own nation, to not be reliant or dependent upon others to feed yourself. And that is kind of couched in a longer colonial history 
and that has a lot of implications for indigenous diets and, and indigenous health. That's Clint Carroll, Associate Professor of Ethnic Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder, enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma and scholar of Cherokee land-based practices. While food sovereignty has not always been at the forefront of the native rights conversation, it's by no means a new or unfamiliar concept. In fact, these traditional foodways have been threatened for hundreds of years. There has been this disruption in our historical food system that's fed our people for thousands of years. And when America was founded, that food system was disrupted and people were removed from their homelands or traditional areas where they would have been harvesting, processing, uh, farming, fishing, hunting. And then a new diet was superimposed upon people. If you can imagine about 10 generations of living through crazy amounts of trauma, witnessing your entire world collapse, and then you're rounded up and your children are taken from you and put into a boarding school, and they are fed army rations. They are fed refined carbohydrates, poor quality fats, and questionable meat sources. That went on for several generations. That's Valerie Segrist, Regional Director for Native Food and Knowledge Systems with the Native American Agricultural Fund, an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Tribe of the Pacific Northwest. Tribal communities are experiencing disproportionate rates of epidemics that are completely nutrition-related and preventable. The top three causes of mortality in Indian country are connected to diabetes, obesity, cancer, and inflammation. Most of those were non-existent pre-contact. In fact, the first recorded incidence of diabetes in a Northwest tribal community was in the 1940s. This disruption in the Native diet has had far and long-lasting implications on the health of modern-day Native populations. From the slaughter of plains bison to near extinction by European settlers, to the over-harvesting of keystone foods like salmon, huckleberry, and lamprey, the degradation of these traditional food systems has been a long and in many cases deliberate process. And these physical manifestations of cultural trauma serve as relics of the settler colonialism which pervades our nation's history. Here's Clint again. You know, food sovereignty is absolutely political. And this it's not about just mere subsistence. It's about this relationship indigenous peoples have with food, but with you know, the land, broadly speaking. And so those types of relationships were also attempted uh, to be uh, severed. As Carol explains, food sovereignty is not just an issue of physical nourishment, but of reclaiming and re-strengthening both the spiritual and physical connection with the land. Despite continued attempts to sever this deep connection, these traditional foodways and subsistence strategies will continue to exist at the core of the Native identity. I mean, that's the beauty of traditional foods is the, the gift of the memory that you, that you get when you are out, you know, harvesting your wild medicines, active on the landscape, all with good intention. You are gifted with memories and, and th that is the medicine that we're all looking for, you know, that we are all seeking, that these foods remind us of who we are, where we come from. To learn more about food sovereignty in the Pacific Northwest and beyond, find the link for Valerie's TED Talk in the episode description. 
In our next story, Miguel Webb offers an example of one food business trying to expand their customer base without sacrificing food sovereignty. Fonio is a 5,000-year-old grain and possibly the oldest cultivated grain in Africa. However, it isn't the easiest food to find in your average grocery store. Luckily, though, there are people doing the work to not only make it available, but also support the people growing it. Pierre Thiam is the co-founder of Yolele, a company dedicated to sharing African cuisine and ingredients, like Fonio, which is indigenous to West Africa. On episode 327 of A Taste of the Past, host Linda Palaccio speaks to Pierre about Yolele. Uh, my first uh, product was Fonio. Fonio was uh, a first one for, for many reasons. You know, I wanted to open markets for cooperatives, for women-owned cooperatives for the most part in West Africa. And they are the ones who are processing and, and packaging Fonio and actually who single-handedly saved this ancient grain by just keeping it going. Because it's a grain that requires a lot of work to process. You know, it was mostly done by hand, you know, with a mortar and pestle, you know, and to, to process at that rate two kilos of fonio, you would have like a couple of hours. The old method uh, of growing fonio is just by throwing it on the ground when, after the first rain. They call it the lazy farmer's gr- crop for that reason. It's, <laughs> it's just, you just throw the seed and you just wait for the, for the harvest. I mean, that's pretty much, that's how easy it is. And then the difficulty comes in the processing part. But the growing is, is quite easy, and, uh, and it grows so fast. It became uh, the grain farmers could rely upon when the rainy season is not good or the other crops didn't make it. Fonio always makes it once you plant it. The ease of growing Fonio means it can be grown anywhere. However, Pierre is determined to keep Fonio farming based in West Africa. He is cautious to avoid the pitfalls of the quinoa industry, in which local farmers growing quinoa in Peru and Chile have been outpriced by large companies. The idea is to keep it growing in West Africa. The right. idea is to definitely uh, learn from the quinoa lesson. I mean, we just really want to make sure the, the, the ultimate beneficiary would be the small farmers in, in West Africa and those women-owned cooperatives. Those big industries just grew it for their own selves, you know, and not only they outpriced the farmers, the local farmers in Peru and uh, Chile, but they, you know, it, it boom followed the bust, of course, and, and now it's like um, many of the countries could have benefited better than, than what's happened right now mm. for, for quinoa. To learn more about Yolele and Fonio, we now hear from my interview with their director of business development, Claire Alsa. Our goal by creating a demand and a market for Fonio in the U.S. at first was not only to introduce an entire new audience to ideas of West African cuisine, culture, and ingredients, but also to create a demand for Fonio um, that rewards and supports um, conservation farming and agro-silvo-pastoral farming of Fonio. So, you know, we're incentivizing and, and paying farmers to continue farming in the methods that they always have grown Fonio and get increasing a sort their source of income to do so. Um, so our hope is that by growing more Fonio in regenerative and rotational farming practices, that Fonio can really be a source of income for farmers that can raise their their annual incomes and help support smallholder farming communities. So 
We never want Fonio to be a monocrop. We never want it to be grown by large corporations. And that's something we've been committed to since day one. And by creating a greater demand for the product here, we can achieve a lot more impact by doing so. With that demand and greater volume coming into the U.S., we plan to build a commercial scale Fonio mill in West Africa to meet that demand and have full visibility in the supply chain and keep as much of the production within West Africa as possible. In addition to keeping small local farms in West Africa engaged in the production of Fonio, Yolele also hopes to increase its popularity in the West African diet. The goal is to also increase food sovereignty within Fonio growing regions in West Africa. Um, for example, right now, even in Dakar, the capital of Senegal, it's, it's hard to find Fonio, but people eat baguettes with wheat imported from France every day. And so, um, as Pierre always says, there's a mentality, a leftover sort of overhold of colonialism of what's West is best in West Africa. And we're trying to show that if we can make Fonio a cool item here in the U.S., that there will be an increased recognition and appreciation of these local indigenous ingredients like Fonio within West Africa as well. Lastly, I had to get Claire's advice about how to eat Fonio. Another way that I really enjoy Fonio is to sort of twice cook it. So first, you know, cook it the standard way on the package, um, steam it, fluff it, let it cool a little bit, and then to incorporate it into sauteed dishes, um, do sort of fried rice style dishes, let it soak up even more olive oil. And, you know, I like to cook it up with like sauteed eggplant and anchovy and tomato paste and onion, you know, my Southern Italian vibes coming through. And Fonio, again, just, just soaks up those flavors beautifully. And then you can use that as either sort of like a veggie grain side, make veggie style, you know, fritter meatballs out of it to fry or bake, use it for stuffed peppers, any of those types of things, you know, if you're feeling crazy, throw a little mozzarella in at the end. That's my lazy sort of one pot dinner as well. Anyway, that's probably what I'm going to have for dinner tonight. <laughs> to hear the rest of Pierre's interview, be sure to listen to A Taste of the Past, episode 327. Pierre TM on Fonio, history and future of the African supergrain. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. This episode of Meet and 3 is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee, representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan's superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at ChooseCherries.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Up next, Bryce Bayeke takes a look at a recent episode of Eat Your Heartland Out on HRN, where the author of The Sioux Chef's Indigenous Kitchen, spelled S-I-O-U-X, talks about his foray into the world of Indigenous culinary history. 
I had this epiphany of doing what I'm doing today, which is really a focus on North American indigenous foods. And a lot of that was a realization of uh, just seeing that there was almost no um, indigenous uh, uh, anything in the culinary world around the United States or anywhere. So um, I really wanted to get to the bottom of what that meant to me and uh, my ancestors. That's Sean Sherman, a member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe and owner of the Sioux Chef in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sherman is focused on sharing the culinary history of indigenous communities in North America. We really believe in indigenous education and creating a space for that. So um, our for-profit business was the sous chef, you know, where we had a food truck called Tatanka Truck, and we've had a catering operation um, for the past uh, f- a few years, which we just uh, sold a couple of summers ago. Um, what we're really focused on is that nonprofit, which is called Natives, and it's an acronym for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. And this year we're opening up um, our first unit called Indigenous Food Lab, which is going to start here in Minneapolis. With the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, Sherman was forced to delay the opening of the food lab, but he hopes that it will open later this year. It's going to be a center where people will be able to come and try a food in a restaurant setting, but also more importantly, there's going to be a a kitchen classroom for people to take classes on indigenous food system uh, education and curriculum. So we're developing um, curriculum around seed saving and farming styles and wild food and ethnobotany and culinary techniques and food preservation and even other things like um, crafting and medicinals and language and all of it. We just want to create a center space for indigenous focused education. When Sherman started the sous chef in 2014, he cut out all colonial ingredients. These are ingredients that were not native to the Americas, like wheat flour, beef, pork, chicken, and sugarcane. Instead, he used native ingredients like wild rice, freshly caught walleye, rose hips, blueberries, and wild tubers like hopness and sunchoke, to just name a few. It's really exciting to think about how much diversity there is out there, number one, because, you know, there's still 573 tribes in the U.S., um, 622 in Canada, and 20% of Mexico identifies as indigenous. So there's a lot of indigenous groups. And every few hundred miles, you're moving into a whole new different area. You know, it's a different language, different flavors, different religions, different everything. So what we do, we've been traveling around the United States a lot and exploring all these different flavors. And we just really try to make food taste like where we are. And it's, you can literally just like stand in one spot um, in these forests and these Great Lakes regions and just look around and see all those ingredients right around you, you know. And so we're just really trying to make a, the food taste like exactly where we are. And there's so much because the Western diet really doesn't touch so much of this plant life that's around us. For Sherman, educating people about indigenous culinary history is more than just about eating good food. It's about giving food sovereignty back to the hundreds of First Nations throughout the Americas. Food sovereignty really is, um, especially with indigenous communities, tied to food security. And it's looking at how indigenous peoples lost so much food security, um, especially during the 1800s and 1900s, and being removed from their own foodways. So it's all about um, these indigenous communities having the ability to um, kind of manage their foods for themselves and to really um, grow their production of the foods so they could really be secure, you know, because they need to have access to the foods, they need to be able to produce them, they need to be able to mandate their own rules around them. Listen to the full interview with Sean Sherman in episode three of Eat Your Heartland Out. To support or learn more about the Sioux Chef and North American traditional indigenous food systems, visit their websites by following the links in the show notes. In our final story, Emily Kunkel looks at the fight for Palestinian food to be called just that. 
Palestinian. What happens to a people without autonomy? What happens to their history, their culture, their food? These are the questions Palestinians have faced since the Nakba of 1948, which expelled over 700,000 Palestinians from their homes. These questions have now resurfaced with Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu's most recent promise of further annexation this year. With more annexation comes more erasure and appropriation. Food remains at the center of the Palestinian fight for autonomy and identity. You know, food is a way to keep record of a culture's history. It's a way to transmit that history through time to preserve traditions. That's Reem Kassis, cookbook author of The Palestinian Table. She grew up in Jerusalem and at the age of 17 left for college in the U.S. Obviously, you generally tend to define yourself relative to others, and it's only once you start living in a foreign setting that these things become more stark. And once I started seeing people saying, oh, this is Israeli, and in my mind I'm thinking, but hold on, this is what we eat at home. And, you know, Israel is a new country. How are you saying this is Israeli cuisine when in fact it's what people in Palestine and the entire Levant have been eating for centuries before? Over 200,000 people identifying as Palestinian live in the U.S., but their food is all but invisible. Rima Seal, chef, activist, and owner of Reams California in Oakland, sees this erasure in two different forms of coded language. All I see out there that like describes Arab cuisine in general is like two ways, like a de-ethnicized like American version that has no story or just complete erasure of narrative, or even worse, I think for me as a Palestinian, seeing the Israeli food scene just like come to a rise with no mention of Palestinian identity in it. Like, it's like all of our foods and, you know, no mention of us. This de-ethnicized American version is all too familiar. My favorite falafel shop from college, Mamoon's, calls itself Mediterranean, while my Palestinian friend's family restaurant is broadly advertised as Arab food. I mean, you have to bear in mind, in the West, up until the late 60s, nobody knew what Middle Eastern food was. Claudia Rodin's first book came out in 1968, and I think that was the West's first or initial exposure to Middle Eastern food, prior to which even chickpeas and eggplants were hard to find in supermarkets. For the better part of the decade, the U.S. media has pigeonholed the Middle East into a conflict zone. This presentation has no doubt affected the public's view on Arab food, but Palestine has suffered disproportionately. The taboo of calling something Palestinian versus Syrian evokes completely different levels of discomfort for many people, even though both countries are currently embroiled in conflicts. If you look at the popular Michelin-starred Israeli restaurant in Philadelphia, Zahav, you'll see items described as Moroccan or Persian. Specificity isn't always the issue. Rather here, it's the nature of the dispute. So if you're looking at it from the Israeli perspective, the word Palestinian is very fraught. There's this Israeli narrative of a land without a people for a people without a land. So to say Palestinians implies that it shows that there were people here before the occupation of 1948. And that's an uncomfortable reality. It's easier just to say Arabs because that lumps us in with everybody and kind of distorts the view of what actually happened here um, almost a century ago now. The other day, my mother was coming home in a taxi from the western side of town, the Jewish side, and she got to talking with the cab driver, and he said, 
you know, the, she was buying stuff for my photo shoot. He asked what I do. She said, I wrote a cookbook. What's the name? She said the first book was called The Palestinian Table. And his response was, ah, why are you putting politics into it? And she goes, what politics? What is our cuisine? She goes, if you go to, he's like, it's all Arabic food. She says, well, what is, uh, you know, if you go to Egypt, what's their food? He's like, yeah, that's also Arabic, Egyptian food. What about Morocco, Moroccan? She's like, okay, so why does Palestinian food become political just by the mere fact of calling it by that name? And so, yes, in that sense, calling something Palestinian for many people can at times uh, feel threatening or fraught, but for me, it's actually a way to assert our identity and to preserve it. Recent years have seen an increase in Palestinian cookbooks such as Cassis's or restaurants such as the Seals. In fact, the large diasporic nature of the Palestinian population has actually created an additional alley for resistance and growth. We are one of the biggest refugee populations in the world. And everywhere we've gone, we've influenced the cuisine. And we've taken influences from the cuisine around us. Like I've been like, in my mind, I'm like, I want to do a show on this because it's like amazing. You think about like a country like Chile, it's like almost half a million Palestinians who <laughs> um, are multi-generation there. And they're like whole sections of Chile that are like, you see the Palestinian flag. And I'm interested, what does the food look like there? In some ways, the diaspora is really, really important for the preservation of Palestinian cuisine because in Palestine itself, I mean, I, it's not a secret anymore that like, they're saying, you know, we're already in 2020 and with the pandemic, I'm sure this is like exacerbating this, that Gaza by like the World Health Organization is an unlivable place. It is like super, super food insecure. And um, it's, you know, the, the, the world's largest open air prison and it's densely populated and there's no agriculture. And, you know, the Palestinians can't even be able to afford the things that they used to subsist off. And so a dish like musakhan, that chicken dish, which comprises of olive oil, it like celebrates the olive oil harvest, the olive harvest, um, they don't make it with olive oil anymore. They make it with like whatever oil that they can afford. So it's not to its like full potential because of the economic and political situation over there. So in many ways, the diaspora sort of keeps that original dish alive because of the privileges we have outside of Palestine. To learn more about our guests and Palestinian food, visit the links in our episode description. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Tosh Kimmel, McGill Webb, Bryce Bayaki, and Emily Kunkel. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.